So if you ask many adults who grew up in Christian homes, uh, how sure were they of their salvation when they were growing up as little kids? Many will probably tell you it was a struggle. I know for me it was, and I've heard countless stories of uh, different versions of the same story of people saying, you know, asking Jesus into their heart daily, <laughs> hourly, uh, weekly. Um, just, you know, who knows what, what came of it. Maybe it was um, they were afraid of hell and all of a sudden were afraid and had to ask again. Maybe they were thinking, I wasn't sure like I said it right or put the formula in the correct order. And so I just got to say it again real quick. Um, maybe they punched their sibling or snuck ice cream for breakfast. Just some thoughts. I don't, I don't know. Uh, there's some examples of that it just came to my my mind, um, but th- there's multiple ways that uh, this story has been told to me of people as small children and even as adults struggling with assurance. Um, and, but it's not just for people who grew up in Christian homes, right? There are people who have come to Christ later on, and those old self patterns are so strong as they've they've been in in use for decades, right? And so it's so hard to to let that go, and it, it's discouraging sometimes. Hard to see change. And so people get discouraged. Did, did God really save me? Was that real? Um, shame and doubt creep in, whether we've been walking with Jesus for 30 days or 30 years. And theologians and lay people alike have struggled for the past 2,000 years in regarding the idea of assurance. How do I know I'm saved? Especially when I sin, especially when I'm failing, especially when I look at myself and I'm just disgusted. And many don't know where to look. For assurance. And so today's passage is a key passage in understanding this truth and this discussion. So we're going to see that we need to both look to God himself and to the evidence of God at work in us in order to walk in, in obedience and to walk in confidence. So the first point we see here in 1 John, in the, in the first few verses, starting with verse 11, is that the evidence of life is love. The evidence of spiritual life, of spiritual vitality, the fact that we have, tr- have been saved is that we would love. The evidence of life is love. We see this in verse 11. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. You just pause there for a second. This, this echoes 1-1, right, in that this is the core of Jesus' earthly ministry. If you look at 1 John 1-1, it's what, we have, what was from the beginning, what we have heard and seen with our eyes and observed and touched with our hands, the, the word of life. What we have heard from the beginning, very from the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth, was love. It's the core of his earthly ministry. And this command, it says it's partly the summary of the entire law, right? What's the law condensed into one phrase? Love God and love neighbor, right? Love God and love your neighbor. And so this command is core to who we are. John makes just this huge deal about love, and that's why, right? Because it's the most important command. It consolidates the entire law. It's culminated in, in 1 John 4, 7, when he proclaims that famous truth that God is love. And he's going to unpack this central command that we've heard from the beginning throughout our passage today. But first, we're going to see an example of the anti-lover in Cain. So he says there in verse 12, Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. But Cain, he's set up here as this anti-lover. His hatred of his brother led to his murder. And his example is a pattern of those who do not love. And his motives are simply, it says, why did he do it? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers 
were righteous. We also see he says Cain was of the evil one. And thus continuing again this contrast that he has throughout the book of the false teachers, those who are of Satan and those who are of God. Except here, it's not false teaching he's talking about. It's, you might want to say, uh, false doing. Uh, Those who act like they worship God. Remember Cain? He just didn't murder Abel out of nowhere. He worshiped God, but in the wrong way and not in a heart of love, didn't he? And so it was this false worship, this hollow worship, and it led to hatred and jealousy of his brother, hatred and of, of Abel. And so he was characterized by hatred and false worship. And John, and he's just so black and white, isn't he? And it makes us uncomfortable. Um, but if, if you look at it from God's perspective, this is the way, the way God sees it. It brings a certain gravity to, to our situation, to our condition, feeling the weight of this command to love one another. And it's not an option because the opposite is hatred and murder and separation. And so if we keep this image of Cain in mind as we go throughout this passage, it's one of false worship, false love of God, hatred that led to murder. And these are the kinds of people John has been calling out in his whole book and that he's been um, frustrated with, angry with, and calling his, his listeners to reject. It's those who have these lofty theological ideas that think they're worshiping, that look like they're worshiping maybe, but in their words and their, their actions don't follow their words. That's the, that's the huge problem. Their actions aren't following their words. And we're going to talk more about them in a second. But if we're characterized by love, like Abel was, who loved God, if we're characterized by love, then what should we expect? If everyone else is like Cain and hatred, hating, then we should expect to be hated, right? We should expect persecution. So we see that in verse 13. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. So it sounds a lot like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? When Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. John says that we should expect persecution because those who imitate Cain are on the other side. They're the ones who, they will persecute you. So his evidence of this true flourishing life is love. The evidence of life is love. Love of the brothers and sisters. We keep reading. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. So there we have it. There we have it. The evidence of life is love. And it specifically says love of the brothers and sisters, love of believers, love among each other. So you have to ask, why is that so compelling? Right? Doesn't everybody love these days? Like, isn't that the cool thing to do now? Isn't that uh, all over our culture, right? Um, Our culture is a culture of love, I think, supposedly. That's what they say, at least. No. Right? Love has been hijacked, right? Completely hijacked by our culture. It's been hijacked to push certain agendas. Um, It's been pushed to and hijacked to manipulate us. It's been hijacked to justify sin, right? None of these things are characterized by actual sacrificial love, is it? Actual sacrificial love looks completely different because this watered down, it's not even love it's because it's so watered down, right? It, it, it turns into hatred. Why? Because when we call it out, when we speak out against that unbiblical version of love, we are hated, And so that's what we should expect, right? Because, as he says, the one who does not love remains in death. 
The one who does not love remains in death. So those who do not have the divine love of God burning inside of them will hate. Love is a gift. We are fallen people. We are naturally not going to love. I think we all know that. We know our hearts well enough to know that, right? And as he says, just like their spiritual father Cain, hatred leads to murder. Again, that's an echo of the Sermon on the Mount. There's not a bunch of people murdering everybody out there, right? Um, We have hatred in our hearts. If we have hatred in our hearts, then we are guilty of murder. And outside the kingdom, as Jesus says, if you look at someone and hate them, you are guilty of murder. And so this contrast of those who are of Cain and of the, the, of the, of the evil one and the seed of the woman and, the, and the, um, those of the children of God has been traced throughout redemptive history. And if you look at all the way back to the garden, right, there's those who listen to the snake and those who are of the redemptive history of the seed of the woman. So Cain was cursed and, as John says, was of the evil one. And then you have Noah's son. And Noah's story has so many echoes of Adam's story. And so you have a cursed son of Noah who disgraced his father and sinned against his father. And he is cursed. And then you have those who are against the children of Israel. And because of the Abrahamic covenant, God said, I will curse those who curse you and bless those who bless you. So you have, again, the curse of the people against people who hate, um, who hate the people of God. And all the way down to Jesus in his showdown with the Pharisees. What does he call the Pharisees? calls them a brood of vipers, literally children of the snake, right? And so all the way down to the, the Pharisees, the brood of vipers rising up against the seed of the woman. And of course, ultimately, he crushes the, the head of the snake, right? And of course, he bruises his heel. Of course, it hurts. Um, it still hurts. And, and for us, as we imitate our Savior, as we speak out against evil, as we seek to love in truth, it's going to hurt. It's going to be sacrificial. It's going to be risky. And uh, this painful yet joyful reality, as James says, that we count it joy in trials. Um, this joyful and painful reality of the people of God, it's what we experience, and it's the persecution we often experience. And so it's because of our love, or, or is it, right? It should be. A lot of times we talk about persecution, complain about it, and we don't have time to get into this now, just are you persecuted or do you feel persecuted because of your love or because maybe you're being a little foolish, <laughs> saying things you shouldn't, not showing love, and you're getting necessary backlash, right? That's just something to think about. Um, but if we are truly, sacrificially loving others, imitating Christ, we will receive persecution. You notice at the end of that verse, we see that there's the murderer or those who hate, right, have no eternal life residing within them. No murderer has eternal life residing in him, which is really interesting because the opposite would be true. Those who are of God have eternal life residing in them. I don't know if we think about eternal life in this way. Eternal life starts like far away, right? You know, when Jesus comes back. Actually, eternal life begins now. The eternal life that began at your conversion when you trusted and were brought to life by the Spirit of God. But those who do not, those who hate, do not have this eternal life residing in them. And so it's not for the future. It starts now and it's characterized. This eternal life, the fruit of it is characterized by that sacrificial love. The divine love that lives inside of us and is connected to us through the Spirit. 
And so we get to this next section. Number two, the source of love is Jesus' life. Right? So if the evidence of true life is love, we see that the source of love is Jesus' life. Because, you know, if we were saying, oh, like, okay, love is, is the proof that I'm alive. Well, where do I get love? Like, what if I can't just dig it up in my heart? Well, because we can't, right? Well, the source of our love, thankfully, is Jesus. The source of our love is Jesus' life. Number two. And so we start with verse 16. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So we see that the love we have is evidence that we are of God. And it doesn't come from our fallen hearts. We see the source and the response. So Jesus is the source and we are to respond. The divine love within us leads us to love others. So he laid down his life for us, and thus we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters and give to those in need. Again, why is this so compelling? Why is this so different? Because we choose in this church body and in the universal church, we choose to love people that are really different than us. That's what's compelling. The church should be a compelling community that is bonded together by love of each other because of the love of Jesus that gives freely without the thought of recompense, without wanting things to be paid back to us. It's a lot different than the love that we hear about in our culture. And so we see this clear division between those of the world and those of God. Those of the world take life, right? Murdering or murder in our heart, right? Hatred. That's taking. There's always wanting to take. But those of the children of God, we give. We give lives in love. And this back and forth, this dichotomy of hatred and love is really hard for us to swallow if we think about it too long, right? Because if we're not actively loving, then what are we doing? Like if you're ignoring the call to, to sacrifice yourself, then what you probably are doing is sacrificing others. That's hatred. Sacrificing others for your own agenda. Sacrificing others for yourself. You're either giving or you're taking. Which one is it? We need to consider our hearts before God. Are we hating those closest to us? If we're not sacrificing ourselves, we may be sacrificing them on the altar of our own selfish desires to try to get what we want and satisfy ourselves, and that's hatred. And of course, I mean, as John says, we, we will sin. And when we sin, we repent. We have an advocate with the Father. But we're in danger when we make a habit of hatred, a habit of sin, a habit of this. And we have to ask ourselves those hard questions if that is true of us. And so what does it look like to lay down our lives for the brothers or sisters? He he continues on in verse 17. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? Here's this practical example. And if, you, if you're paying attention, it, 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 it kind of, he might kind of freak you out. You got to lay down your life. You got to die. Oh, just give to someone in need. Oh, okay, I can do that. Like, I, I'm not sure I'm ready to just like throw myself in front of a bus or, or die or be a heroic martyr. Um, but I can give to someone in need. And so he transitions from this sacrificial bloody death of Jesus on the cross to a call to give to those in need. 
it's, gonna be, it's just really unlikely that you're going to have to be a martyr and highly unlikely you're going to have to die for somebody else and sacrifice yourself for someone else. And if you're sitting around waiting for that to happen, you're not going to be loving anybody. You're just going to be waiting. Where's my moment? Where is it? But you're not actually actively loving. So that's why he brings it back down to this high and lofty thing to something very tangible, something very practical for, for us to do. We are to direct this towards believers in need and so there's many in our community and many around the world that need our love, that need our commitment and need, we have so much in America. If you're sitting in this room, you are probably in the position that you can give to someone. I don't know what level we're at, you know, they're, they're, but we are wealthier than the entire, most of the world. And there are tons, and I'm guilty of this. Um, I know that I can be very stingy. I can be very uh, self-providing uh, and, and worry about my own self and my own provision and things like that, um, and get self-focused. But if we have truly internalized the sacrificial love of God, and this should be so easy for us to do, right? It's a lot easier than martyrdom. It's a lot easier than dying. So we definitely should be able to do this and think about this. So who do you need to care for? Who do you need to give to? Who do you need to reach out to and show this sacrificial love as an imitation of your Savior who sacrificed everything for you? Who, does, who is that in your life? Think about them. Ask the Spirit to bring to your mind someone who you can give to and care for and exemplify this love of God for us. So again, the source of our love is Jesus' life. And we see this core, still number two here, this core command about what love looks like. This is it right here. Verse 18, Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action and in truth. This is the core of what John is calling all of us to. It doesn't mince words. Don't love in word. Don't love in speech. Simply saying that we love someone doesn't count as love. Like we all know that, especially if we're married, right? Uh, it doesn't count. Love is an action. It is literally impossible to just use words. We actually, we actually have to enact it and live it out and embody it. And that will include words, right? It's not that you walk around mute, just acting and not talking, right? It includes words, but it can't just be, I love you, I love you, you're great, but not actually entering in and caring for people and loving people. So why does he keep coming back to this love and action thing? We've seen it throughout the book. We're going to see it again more uh, and so, so why does he keep coming back to it? And as Pastor Ryan has mentioned, there are, um, there's a particular heresy that's probably what he, what's in his sights that he wants to call people out of. And uh, he's mentioned the fancy word proto-gnosticism, which is a fancy way of describing people who um, simply wanted to think about things, um, this is really simple, and not do things. Actually, um, if the thoughts were in line, everything else was fine. Embodiment didn't matter. Actually, um, embodiment is kind of gross in their minds, and, and acting and, and living and getting down in the mess is actually kind of gross and so, to, in their minds. So, so why John has spent so much time talking about in chapter 1, that which we have touched, that which we have seen. Jesus came. His love was embodied and real and incarnate in uh, time and space. And the fallout of that is if embodied, embodied commands don't matter, then what are we? nothing. We're hypocrites. There's no, there's no substance if we are not living out the truth of Jesus. 
And, you know, I know it's easy for our eyes to glaze over when you hear proto-Gnosticism, like, right? Like, such a nerdy word. Uh, you know, we can easily disassociate from that, right? Um, it's not something you're really concerned about, like, on your forefront of your mind. Like, on a first date, you're not going to be like, so, proto-Gnosticism, where you at? Where, where you at with that? Um, we don't make you answer that question on your membership application, right? Like, it's not something that we're constantly thinking about, right? It's not, like, on the forefront of our minds as a huge, um, as a huge deal. But, but this is the thing. When I look at the landscape of the, the Christian church, and I know our um, subculture of Christianity, we don't, I don't think we're at risk for hijacking love, as we talked about, into something that's watered down and ceases to be real love, like I talked about what we talked about before. Um, this, though, this dangerous way of thinking is a bigger threat, I think, to conservative churches. To, in other words, it's when we worry about theological ideas so much that, and, um, instead of acting on them. And that, that sounds more like the ugly side of conservatism than it does the ugly side of liberalism, which is what we probably talked about before with that watered-down love. Um, when we're concerned more with ideas of love than love itself, you end up with churches and denominations and, 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 uh, and, and pastors and who are more concerned about being right than actually loving rightly. And that's a huge, huge problem. It's a huge problem. And if maybe, maybe you aren't aware of this, but there's some serious carnage in conservative churches and conservative movement recently in the past decade, right? Rampant narcissistic abuse and cover-up and things that, um, and these are conservative people. It'd be really convenient if it was just the Catholics or just the liberals, right? That'd be awesome. And we'd be like, oh, look at us. We're so awesome. No, we have to take the log out of our own eye. We have to be aware of what's going on in our midst. It'd be really convenient if we could just look at others. Um, And maybe you're unaware of the news headlines, and that's fine. We're not going to get into that. But the idea is simply when we let our brains leave our hearts in the dust, right? When we're just all concerned about thinking the right way and leave our hearts in the dust, our bodies don't catch up, right? We're not going to follow because we do. Our actions come from our hearts. Our actions come from what we desire and what we want. We follow our hearts more than our heads. That's how God made us. And if we're just in pie-in-the-sky thinking stuff, um, our hearts are often impoverished. So when we don't slow down, when we don't seek to purposely make new habits uh, that are influenced by that great theology, uh, through the help of the Spirit, through the accountability that is absolutely necessary in our churches, our hearts don't catch up to our heads. And so what we know and what we think doesn't have bearing on our lives, and it's not backed up by our actions, and we are hypocrites. And the fallout is huge. Um, and maybe you think I'm just ranting and being mean, but this is my story. Like, I was in seminary um, getting Master's of Divinity. Like, what kind of name is that Master's degree? Like, who named that? Like, I have Master Divinity, and I'm a jerk. Like, <laughs> like that, like, I, I, that, but that was me. Like, I would say, ask my wife, but actually don't. Like, I don't want you to find out. Um, <laughs> you know, I had a lot of ideas, learning a lot of things. Um, I wasn't really great at loving when it, when it got hard. Um, and uh, I can imagine John up in heaven like, Proto-Gnostic, get him! You know? And uh, it's like, God's like, it's okay. Like, I got him. And uh, thankfully, God took care of me and brought people into my life to, to care for me and, and uh, connect to, to my heart more. And that's, that's my journey, right? And that's all of our journey. 
Um, it's so easy to just say the right things, just to think and check off the right boxes that we believe this and believe that, but embodying the truth is a whole nother matter. It depends on God's work in our hearts. As we see in, in Psalm verse 16, we look to Christ being fueled by the gospel to be sacrificial in our actions. And thus we will not only love in action, but as he says in verse 18, not only loving in action, but the command is to love in action and truth. So our, what that means is our love will demonstrate the truth, what is actually true of you. It will demonstrate that, hey, that person has been changed. That person has been shaped by love, and he's acting, and that shows what's true. So we love in light of the truth that we have been transformed on a deep heart level by the person of Christ through the work of the Spirit. And when we truly love this way, our love demonstrates the truth within us, that leads us to the discussion of assurance. That leads us to be assured of our salvation. So we move on to verse 19. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. That bad news. This, the this, first word, verse 19, is looking backwards. Okay? Check it out. This is talking about the command. Our love comes from God, but that love acted out in truth, acted out in action. As we obey, that obedience gives us confidence that we are actually alive. So in other words, we know we belong because the evidence of our love in action and in truth confirms that. That's kind of terrifying. I thought we just looked at Christ. Like, I don't want to look at myself. Right? For assurance. Just calm down. We'll get there. But it doesn't take away from the reality that we must have the fruit of love. The cause is known by the effect. The cause of God's love giving us new life has the effect in us of true love, sacrificial love that comes from us. So John acknowledges that this is hard. And he says, our hearts easily condemn us. So we, we keep reading, you know, our hearts need to be reassured. So we'll know we belong to the truth and we'll reassure our hearts before him. Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows all things. He knows all things. We need reassurance. So in point three here, and this is actually the big idea of the the whole passage, is God's loving presence affirms and provides our fruit of love and root of life. God's loving presence affirms, right? He affirms what's true, points to the reality, points to the fruit, but also provides the fruit of love, gives us the root of life. All right, so how does this work? Let's unpack this. So first we look at the evidence of his work. But ultimately we know that God knows much more about us than we do, right? Uh, We doubt ourselves. But he says there, God knows all things. When we doubt ourselves, sometimes we're blinded by God's work in us because we're so down on ourselves, right? 
mean, I've been there. I know many have been there. Um, Augustine says famously that Christ is more intimate to me than I am to myself. God knows you more than you know yourself. And that's what union with Christ is. And notice that we'll talk about the Holy Spirit in a minute. Um, here, But he says in verse 19 that we will reassure our hearts before him. And some say before him or in his presence. It's not about earning salvation at all. Because you're already in the presence of God. Okay? This is already true of you. So we are already in his presence. But we're doubting in his presence. Right? That's when we struggle with the, the assurance. Right? But here's the deal. Guess what? That conviction you feel, the stress you feel about your sin... That's the good. Like, that's the spirit, which is good news because the spirit is the spirit of life. So you have life. Conviction shows that you are alive. I've talked about reassurance and, and with many, uh, and people say, you know, man, I'm struggling. I feel convicted. Uh, there's a lot I'm missing. I know it. I'm just failing epically, and I feel guilty about where I'm at. I want to see more change. And, yeah, it's always the question, am I even saved? What's going on? If you need reassurance and you're looking for it and are crying out to God, that's usually a good sign, right? Welcome to the club. But if you're just looking at your mistakes and your failures, you're not going to find reassurance, right? You're not. Uh, So in the presence of God, we come here to him, to reassurance. And the fruit is often there. We just don't see it. He knows all things. He reminds us of what he's done in us and through us. The fruit is still there. So he, God directs us away from our failures and to what he's doing in our hearts. So again, God's loving presence affirms what's true and provides. Remember, Jesus' life is the source of our love, so he provides that. It's a gift, and the fruit of love shows that we are actually alive. But the problem is, right, we just can't see pastor sin. We can't see pastor failures. And, you know, this is where we start theologizing. Um, in the name of total depravity, right? Ignore everything good that God does. I'm just a terrible human. I can't take a compliment, like ever. Maybe you need to notch it back a little bit, you know, because there is goodness in you, and the Holy Spirit's purpose, we're going to see, is to show that. It's not from you by yourself. It's from Christ. But it's, it's, still, something, it's still something we need to look to and look to and see and look for. So notch back the self-flagellation, a little bit, because oftentimes when we can we condemn ourselves, we want to make ourselves act better, right? That's a, a good motive, kind of, but we do it through this terrible means of just beating ourselves up. And I mentioned this in the Bolton article this week, but we are often really, really unhelpful in our self-flagellation. And I know I've done this to myself, and the the cost is that we do it to those we love. Right? I know as a parent, I often want to motivate my kids. If I'm lazy, I just want to motivate my kids through shaming them instead of actually being curious about their hearts and helping them see their heart and helping them see their desire and helping them repent and turn to Christ. And instead, we just try to, I try to control them. And we do that to ourselves. We want control over our mess, but we do that through shame and guilt. And I'm reminded of Romans 2, 4, God, God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. And the question is, are we going to receive it? Do we just look at our sin or look to God and the work that he's doing? You're not going to find any assurance by just looking at your failures and looking at your, the, the, the sin that you've, you've committed. We need to look to God 
and what he's doing. So in the presence of God, as he says, before him, reassuring our hearts before him, in his presence, where you already are. You don't have to achieve it. It's already been bought by Christ. You are in his presence before him already, before the throne of grace. Ask him to reveal to you what he's been up to. It takes intentionality. It takes silence. It takes solitude. And part of what's helped me with this is actually asking myself, God, what have you been up to in my life? Like, where have you been showing up? In me. And that's kind of risky because I'm like, uh, I don't, I don't want to be you sometimes or I'm afraid of failure. But, but and a lot of, and when I started trying to make this a practice, I actually couldn't answer it because I'm not paying attention. I'm just looking at myself. I'm not looking at what God's doing. I'm just looking at how terrible I am. And so we wonder and doubt and have struggles with assurance, but we're not paying attention to what he's doing. And it's a great spiritual practice to even do every day, just to calm your heart down, trust that he's at work, ask for him to show you what he's doing in your life. And the question comes, the, the, the point of it is, do we believe our hearts more than God? Do we believe our tortured conscience more than God? The other thing that might be the source of it is we might believe the world more than God. John talked about just a few verses ago that we are hated. And sometimes those messages, those hateful messages, really just mess with you. They really hurt. You start internalizing these things that are coming from the world. The world will hate you. Sometimes that's just really overwhelming and we internalize that hatred from others onto ourselves. Or sometimes just the reality is self-hatred is just, it, it's, it's kind of a, something we carry around with us, maybe our whole life. And we have to recognize the power of, of those thoughts. Like they're really strong, but they're also just thoughts. They're trivial, trivial. Because our real life, as Paul says in Colossians 3, is hidden with Christ in God. Um, it's not who we say we are, who we imagine we are, who we think we are. Whether we think we're amazing or think we're a worm, it doesn't matter. Last week, we saw what God thinks of us. He is our Father. We are His beloved children, right? His opinion of us matters most. We need to say, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, and I'll just uh, summarize it. He says, I don't care what you think. I don't care what the world thinks. I actually don't care what I think about myself. I don't judge myself. God alone is my judge. And in Christ, I'm righteous. And in the presence of the faithful, kind, merciful judge, we ask to be shown, because we can't see ourselves, we ask to be shown what he already knows is true. That he's at work. He loves us. His love is in us and moving in us. And yeah, I understand that's risky for, for some of us uh, to believe that God's doing something. And that you're not a piece of garbage and you need to understand that your tortured conscience, as talk about this in the article, is just, it's trying to control you through shame and it's not going to work. So shame is different than guilt. Guilt is saying, you did something wrong, need to repent, turn back to God. Okay. Shame says there's something wrong with you. Your identity, core identity messages are jacked up. And the reality is outside of Christ, we are jacked up, right? We're a mess. But in Christ, what we do with shame is we rip back the, the, the past and what was true of us outside of Christ, and we bring it into the present and beat ourselves up. And that's not who we are. So our minds are still trying to control us through those messages. 
And God is just standing there saying, are you going to look at me? Are you going to look at what I'm doing? Are you just going to look at yourself? Are you too obsessed with your failures? Give up the defense. Look to Christ. And for many reasons I can't really get into right now, we are, we are constantly thinking we can be cha- shame, changed through shame and guilt. And those then are the tools that we try to use to control others. It's not love. God calls us to lay them down, to trust him, because his loving presence, again, affirms and provides our fruit of love and the root of life in us. So when we get to that point, that's a great place to be. When we get to that point, we then can have confidence in the connection that we have with him. So the last paragraph here, verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, again, he's made that transition. So our hearts were condemning us. We're in the presence of God. Now, if our hearts don't condemn us, then we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments and do what is pleasing in his sight. And there's a lot there. So if our hearts don't condemn us, right? Our hearts have calmed down. The good shepherd has wrangled that spastic sheep that's just freaking out. Now he's laying in the green pasture right beside the still water. He's like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. And we've moved past the internal condemnation, and now we have confidence in our good shepherd. We have confidence in who God is and what he's doing in us. The fruit of obedience, then, is so radical in this fallen world that's characterized by hatred and darkness that we have no choice but to give glory to God and be confident in what he's doing. It's like, I wouldn't be loving. I wouldn't be doing this on my own. Like, thank you, God. We have confidence. It brings us confidence. In the beginning, I talked about that compulsive uh, repenter, especially embodied in a lot of, um, in our younger selves, probably. Um, the one who always thinks that they're not saved. And when we look at our sin, it's going to be tough. But when we look to our, uh, the cause and the effect of divine love, when we look at the cause, the, the actual work of Christ and the effect of love in us, that gives us assurance. The cause and the effect of the lo- divine love brings us assurance. The cause and effect of divine love brings us assurance. So he says there, we receive whatever we ask. Um, and I mean, that, that's kind of, uh, I mean, we receive, verse 22, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence and we receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commandments and do what is pleasing in his sight. Wow, receive whatever we ask. That sounds amazing. I mean, fortunately, I, I've been studying this passage, so I have a head start on you guys with my list. So my stuff should be coming in the mail next week. Um, but... <laughs> You guys can catch up. Um, like, how is this true? Like, this is where name it and claim it theology, like, get, like, it's, okay. So where, how is this true? Um, if you look over probably a page or so in your Bible, the chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, he sort of rehashes this argument. There's a lot of overlap. And he says, this, verse 14, this is the confidence we have before him. Again, before him in his presence. If we ask anything according to his will, right, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. So, if we ask according to his will, as we conform to his will, that's being in constant prayer, submitting, surrendering, as we pray, our will will be aligned with his and we ask for the things God wants of the world. Right? There's a deeper, that's a deep connection to God. And so what we see here 
in, in point four here in, in these verses, 21 to 24, obedience brings confidence and connection. But then also the reverse is true. Connection brings confidence and obedience. I'll unpack that. But first here, this first few verses, obedience, our obedience that God has fostered in our heart, the love he's given us, and we respond, that brings confidence and connection. Because what we, again, another tricky, tricky phrase, we do what is pleasing in his sight. Are you serious? You can please God? Like, you, I can actually please God. You say to John, like, man, have you read Isaiah? Filthy rags. Remember? Like, all my righteousness is filthy rags. Have you, do you, are you aware of that, John? Come on. So, yep, yeah, I know. But Christ has cleansed your filthy rags. You know, we should not ignore the reality that Scripture speaks of being able to please God as his children. Righteousness is possible. It doesn't earn our salvation, okay? It does not earn our salvation. It's not what we're saying. But for example, there, there's so many passages we don't have time to go into. Colossians 1.10, Paul says, He's praised that the church would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit. Romans 12, the presentation of your body right as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing and acceptable to God. There are tons of commands, uh, just a few here. Um, if fulfilled from a worshipful heart that they please God, like looking out for the weaker brother, um, obedience to parents, Ephesians 5, um, sharing from he- the book of Hebrews, I could go on. There are all these commands that if we do them, pleases God. And Kevin DeYoung is so helpful with this. Um, there's a book I'm giving it away tonight for Summerfest, so you can come back. Uh, the hole in our holiness is the, the title of the book. And he says, it's great. Why do we imagine God to be so unmoved by our heartfelt attempts at obedience? He is, after all, a heavenly father, right? What sort of father looks at his daughter's homemade birthday card and complains that this color scheme is all wrong? What kind of mother says to her son, after he gladly cleaned the garage but put the paint cans on the wrong shelf, says, this is worthless in my sight? What sort of parent rolls his eyes when his child falls off the bike on the first try? Now, our heartfelt obedience is pleasing. That whole filthy rags thing has to do with Israel and their, their lame attempt to legalistically please God through ritual and not heartfelt love for God and others. Kind of like Cain, right? Just throw on, it doesn't matter. It's not from the heart. Throw the sacrifice on. It's not right, but just, just doing the motions. That doesn't please God. And I know our obedience, you know, might feel like one of those birthday cards in the front spelled wrong. You open it up and, oh, it's upside down. And I have glue on my hands somehow and things are falling. Like, who cares? God doesn't care. God is pleased with your obedience. He knows you're not perfect. That's why Jesus was sent. Kevin DeYoung in his, in his, uh, in chapter six, the chapter six is titled, I love this, Spirit-Powered, Gospel-Driven, Faith-fueled effort. Say it again. Spirit-powered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. And he goes through a lot of effort to show that the word effort is not a bad word. <laughs> um, and we, we can work at obeying. We must work at obeying um, and obeying his command. So what's the command? Verse 23, it can be summarized by faith and love. We're to put it into James' language, faith and works. He says, verse 24, the one who keeps, uh, 
or sorry, verse 23. Now this is his command that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he has commanded us. So uh, James would say faith and works, right? We must believe faith. We must believe. There must be saving faith, though, submitting faith. Even the demons believe and tremble. Faith without works is dead. So when our faith fuels our obedience to God, he's pleased and we are deeply connected to his will, which is what? His will? Love God and love others. He wants real worshipers who love others. That's what he wants for us. Why? Because that's what's best for us. That's what we're made for. So the one who keeps his commands, we see in verse 24, the one who actually keeps his commands remains in him and he in him. So there's that connection, that abiding connection through the Spirit. The way we know that he remains in us is from the Spirit he has given us. So this is the second part of point four. Connection brings confidence and obedience. So the way we know is that he reminds us that we are in this, with the Spirit. Wait, I thought I was supposed to look to my obedience. He said it before. The way we know is because we obey. Now he says the way we know is what? That he remains in us is from the Spirit. So which one is it, John? Is it I need to be connected with the Spirit or I need to obey? He says, yes. It's all of that. The unbreakable connection we have to God gives us that connection and that confidence when we're discouraged and causes us to look up to him and glorify him for the fruit in our lives. And that fruit gives us confidence as well. So wherever we're at, God meets us where we're at. The Spirit both comforts us and assures us and convicts us. We just have to pay attention. We just have to be open and aware and ask to be, to, to, for him to open our eyes. So who should be worried? We've looked through, looked through this passage. Who should be worried when, as we read through this passage? Well, if you just look at the verse 11 to 15, those who are characterized by hatred, who have that pattern of hatred, Verse 17, those who withhold compassion purposefully. And only you know if you're withholding compassion and love purposefully. Um, Verse 18, those who only give lip service to love but actually fail to act on love. Ultimately, though, it's verse 23. Those who who do not have the twofold fruit of faith and love. Faith working through love, as Paul talks about. And so we might think, okay, is my faith enough? We've all probably struggled with it. Did I say it right when I asked God to come, Jesus to save me? Um, well, Jesus talks about the faith of a mustard seed, right? It's all that's required. And guess what? Your faith isn't perfect, and he knows that. That's why Hebrews talks about Jesus being the author and the perfecter of your faith, because guess what? Your faith needs perfecting. He knows that. So your faith isn't perfect. It's the faith of a mustard seed. Uh, so we, ask, we, we have to ask that question, you know, who should be worried? But there's also people who should be comforted, and that's those who are struggling, struggling with guilt and shame so much that they're struggling to look up to God, to look up to his work, to see what he's actually doing. So get alone with God in his presence. Ask his spirit, reassure me of his work. If you can't even do that, because guess what? We've all been in places where you can't do that. Get a friend. What have you seen in me? Not, not to just build up my ego, but to glorify Christ. What is the image of Christ in me that you see? Please help me. I'm just struggling right now. I, don't judge your progress in comparison to others. Again, God alone is your judge. In Christ, in Christ you are enough. You don't need to compare. The last question, who should be challenged? 
That's a different thing than who should be worried, right? We should all be challenged. We all need this challenge. Because if we're in Christ, even though we're in Christ, we're not perfect. We're not loving perfectly. We always need to be challenged in this regard. But we don't have to despair in light of these verses. Just be challenged. The Spirit is dwelling in us. And the one who remains in us, his job is to convict. And his job is to comfort. So surrender, submit to his work. And I really encourage you to get into that time of solitude. Sounds every day. Ask yourself, God, what are you doing in my life? Help me see. What did God do through me? Where am I resisting? Another question. You have both comfort and conviction. So as we seek to live in assurance of our salvation, as we seek to live in love, may we rest in that truth that God His loving presence affirms us and provides for us the fruit of love and the deep roots of life in us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your work in us and through us. We thank you for this challenge. We pray that we would receive it, not be crushed by it. Pray that those, for those here who are crushed by shame and guilt, that you would bring people into their lives to encourage them, to point them to you, to point them to your, your work in them, that we receive that, that faith and that assurance again before your throne of grace. We pray for those who do not know you. Those, of you. those of us here who, some may be outside of Christ, who may be living in rebellion and not have the true fruit of faith and love. We pray that your spirit would convict and draw them to you. That they would surrender their lives to you, the perfect embodiment of divine love, Jesus. We pray that you would do that for your, for your glory. We pray that you would strengthen us and convict us in Jesus' name. Amen.